You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. And we should mention that the wonderful and amazing patriot P.E. McAllister landed in North Africa in November of 1942. We're going to hear more about that with today's guests. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Taylor Downing. He's a prolific author. I just read his book, 1942, Britain at the Brink, which is what we're going to discuss today. But before we started recording, I said I'm going to buy his book, 1983, The World at the Brink, and hopefully he'll come on to talk about that. Taylor is a British historian. He's a television producer. He's a TV commentator, and he's also, I should say, one hell of a writer. Taylor, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for the invitation. So let's get right into it. You know, we could all probably all write books on on dispositive years in any conflict. And why 1942? Why 1944 with the invasion of France or 41 when both the Soviet Union and the United States become a belligerence? Well, I felt that the, the story of 1942 has been somewhat overlooked, somewhat ignored. In in Britain, we look at 1940 as the uh, sort of pivotal year of, of the war of survival, of Britain's survival. This was the year, just to remind everybody, of the Battle of France, in which the Germans overwhelmed the Dutch, the Belgians, and the French in a blitzkrieg campaign that in a matter of weeks, they conquered the whole of that territory, territory that in four years in the First mm. World War, they, they never conquered at all. So. It really was a, 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 an astonishingly rapid military success. The Battle of France was followed by the Battle of Britain, the famous air battle in which the RAF battled it out against the Luftwaffe um, and very nearly came to defeat. But Hitler took a fundamentally wrong 
choice to give up uh, bombing the the RAF airfields and to decide and decided to shift the campaign to the blitz to the bombing of the civilian towns initially London London was bombed every night for 75 nights uh, and then all the other major cities in in the UK were, were bombed as well and uh, of course the, the the person who became British leader right at the peak of this on the 10th of May 1940, the day that actually Hitler launched his invasion of France, Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, was Winston Churchill. Now, you might think, people might imagine that um, being appointed the prime minister on a day in which three million men are fighting for the future of Europe would be a pretty daunting challenge. And we know that, you know, Churchill was concerned, uh, very concerned about the situation. But he wrote later, you know, I felt I was walking with destiny. He felt that his whole life had really come to this point where he could at last take charge of Britain and lead the country. And I'm sure most of your listeners know that the key elements of that. He stood up to, to Hitler. He provided the leadership, the guidance, and the sort of the national inspiration for the British people to carry on and uh, to stand up to, to what must have looked, you know, to my grandparents' generation, must have looked pretty overwhelming. You know, Hitler, everywhere he attacked, he defeated Poland, Norway, Denmark, as I said, France, Belgium and Holland, you know, th this army looked completely victorious. And there was Britain standing pretty much alone against this um, monstrous enemy. But Churchill gave the people the determination to fight on. And that's always been looked at as a sort of principal moment. You know, Churchill uses the phrase, if, if Britain lasts for a thousand years, this will be their finest hour. Uh, people will look back and see it as their finest hour. Uh, and most people see that as the sort of peak moment in, in British terms of the Second World War, and that there's then a sort of slow struggle, relatively continuous struggle towards victory five years later. My argument in, in the book about 1942 is that things got a lot, lot worse. In fact, I hadn't fully realised quite how bad the situation became in Britain in 1942 until things turned around at the end of the war. And so I was trying to tell the story, a story that begins with elation on the night of December the 7th. <laughs> the, sleep of the, the sleep of the salvation or the, the sleep that's of the it. saved. That's it. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Churchill is at Chequers, which is the British country house given uh, over for the use of the prime minister. It's still being used today by prime ministers. So it's a country house outside London. He's there. He's actually with the American ambassador. He has dinner. Sunday, uh, it was a Sunday, December the 7th, and by the time the news gets through on the BBC radio that the Japanese have attacked the US Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, it's nine o'clock in the evening, and uh, Churchill hears the announcement on the radio, immediately puts in a call to the White House, and in a few minutes gets through to President Roosevelt, who says, yes, we're all in the same boat now, it's true, you know, we're all in this war together now. And you can imagine the scene of the hubbub of activity. Churchill recalls Parliament for the next day. He sends, a, sends out instructions to his foreign secretary that we must now declare war on the Japanese. He contacts a few other world leaders. You know, all his staff are running hither and thither, 
uh, as uh, as the war has suddenly gone into a completely new realm altogether. And in the middle of that, Churchill just decides to go upstairs, go to bed and to sleep. He leaves his officials charging about. And he later says, as, as you just said, Robert, he later says, uh, that night I slept the sleep of the saved and the thankful because he knew with America in the war, the war was won. And by this time, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, you know, just to complete that thought, but already the Soviet Union was in the war. Um, Russia had been invaded by by Hitler in June 1941. So, So come December, the evening of December the 7th, when Churchill has this wonderful night of sleep, um, he's got the Soviet Union and the United States as allies, and he knows the war is won. What he doesn't know is how bad it's going to get before they get out of the uh, of the of the cycle of defeat and crisis in 1942. I read a biography of, and I'm correct me if I'm my memory is convoluted here i read a biography a few years ago it was about the life of foreign minister sir edward gray was foreign minister for great britain during world war one and he had a quote his famous quote is once the war started uh, the lights are going out all over europe we shall not see them lit again in our lifetime that's what he said about world war one but when the united states entered the great war in april of 17 he had what i thought is one of the most apt quotes i've ever heard and that is america is like a gigantic boiler once lit there's no limit to how much heat it can produce is that something that you think really resonated in churchill's mind that not only not only do we have men coming to fight with us shoulder to shoulder, but also the, the, the gigantic, the amazing American economy was going to make a difference for everybody. That's exactly what Churchill thought. In fact, he even quoted Gray uh, at one point in the, in the days following the 7th of December with that, that boiler uh, <laughs> metaphor that, that, you, that you just said. No, I mean, Ch- Churchill, at that point in the war, the Soviet Union was an uneasy ally, not only because it was ideologically so so different, but you know when when Churchill hears of the invasion, Hitler's invasion of um, of the Soviet Union, an aide says to him, he's about to give a speech saying we we completely support Stalin and the Soviet Union, an aide says to him. Um, you know, are you sure we should be giving quite such uh, overt support to, to 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 a communist regime? And Churchill says, uh, if Hitler invaded the devil, I w- if, if Hitler invaded hell, I would put in a good word for the devil. <laughs> so, so Churchill Churchill is absolutely delighted that that you know Hitler's resources are going to attack the Soviet Union. But you know, it really looked as though Hitler was going to charged through Russia just as he charged through Western Europe. And by December 1941, you know, the prospect that the Soviet Union would be defeated, that Hitler would then return to attack Hitler, you know, refight the Battle of Britain, reinvigorated with the success in Russia behind was very great. So the moment America comes into the war, Churchill knows that it will become the arsenal of victory, that, that famous phrase. We know that he's overwhelmed by the by the thought of a massive 
firepower that America will generate, the, the, the men that will come to fight as they had done in the First World War, crossing the channel to, to fight a war in another continent. Um, and uh, he, he, he's, he's a fan of Roosevelt. He's, um, he's tried hard to persuade Roosevelt to give Britain support um, when America was still neutral. But he's a fan. He becomes, in fact, I mean, historians argue, were they actually friends or were they just allies sort of forced, mm -hmm. forced into an association by, by, by circumstances? And I think they actually became very good friends. I've read so many accounts of, from Churchill and from Roosevelt of the time they spent together. Remember in those days, you know, conferences went over in a few hours. You know, you didn't fly off to somewhere and meet a world leader and in 30 minutes you're you know you're on the plane home sort of thing you know conferences right. went on for days and weeks when churchill persuades roosevelt that he should come to washington soon after december the 7th soon after pearl harbor and he spends i, I think it was about three weeks yeah. uh, off and on in washington he lives in the white house you know they're they're very close he describes it to to to, to politicians back in london he says we're like one big happy family here um, and it's and, that, and it would be a it would be a mistake to assume. Let me say it differently. It would it would be ahistoric to assume that the relationship that the United States and Britain had during this time, the late 1930s, early 40s, is somehow the relationship we have now. There were still a lot of Americans who didn't want to be involved in any foreign wars, thought that World War One was an aberration, and you know there. There was still some even late 19th century hostilities between Britain and the United States over Oregon. That's a little bit earlier, but over the canal, things going on in South America. Roosevelt sends the Great White Fleet around. So we weren't one big happy family when war, when the war clouds start to gather for World War II. Is that a fair statement? I think it is. Yes, yes. I think, I think that's definitely the case. And um, Churchill knew that in trying to persuade uh, Roosevelt to, to give Britain the military aid that it needed to, to, to fight on and to, uh, at that point, confront the Nazis alone sort of thing. Um, he knew it was an uphill struggle, not only because Roosevelt didn't want to get involved in, a, in, in another European war, but for all the reasons you just said, you know, there was a, a strong well of, of opinion in the United States that the isolationist um, view from from the end of the first world war onwards that, that you know the u.s shouldn't get involved in these in these foreign foreign wars that everybody knew would be very costly um and i don't just mean to the economy i mean in, sure. in human life and blood um so it really was a turning point december the 7th when when america comes into the war and then declares uh, you know in these first conferences that in fact the priority is going to be the defeat of uh, germany uh, obviously, the, the battle in the Pacific, war in the Pacific, will carry on. But but the the the, the major resources are going to defeat Germany. That that's a big uh, a big moment for Churchill. So forty two begins. Coming back to your original question, why forty two? You know, forty two begins on a real high note. You know, Churchill makes this fantastic speech in Congress, uh, a joint meeting of Congress. You know, he begins because Churchill's mother was an American. Um, Churchill begins with this phrase. He says, you know, had it been the other way around, had my father been American and my mother English, then you might have heard my voice before because he would probably be an American <laughs> senator by this point. You know, so he starts off with that sort of joke. And of course, the, the uh, senators and Republicans abs absolutely love that. 
um, senators and representatives. I absolutely love that. And he makes a very, very defined, very strong speech. So, there, you know, the beginning of 1942, everything couldn't be going better, really, for Churchill. He's living in the White House. He's got the support, American popular support behind him. And he knows that although it'll take a while for the war machine to build up, he knows that with America um, in the war, the, the Allied cause, the, the Anglo-American cause w will eventually win. But what he doesn't know is how bad it gets. It will get in 1942. And that's really the subject of my book, that it isn't a smooth ride in right. British terms from 40 to 45. There is this real dip in 42 before things start, start recovering. You are listening and to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is Taylor Downing. We're discussing his new book. It's terrific. 1942, Britain at the Brink. So let's say it's January 1st, 1942. How would you assess Churchill's and Great Britain's generals and leaders and officials? How would you assess their performance until the year of their book, your book? So war is declared in September 39. So September 39 to January 1st, 42. Do you think they did just about as well as they could do, or were there too many mistakes that could have been avoided? Well, I think there was there were certainly mistakes were made. Um, uh, I mean, the key engagements with the enemy up until 1942 had been a British um, expeditionary force had gone to Europe to stand by the French, as had happened in 1914. But unlike in 1914, where the conflict end, you know, is rapidly into stalemate that lasts for years and years, um, as I was saying earlier, the Hitler's army overwhelms the French and the British. The British retreat at Dunkirk. Uh, Churchill calls it a miracle of deliverance because the army wasn't wiped out. The British army wasn't wiped out. It managed to get away. About 300,000, 330,000 men it managed to evacuate. But of course, you don't win wars by evacuations, you know, by retreating. So Britain gets its men back into the United Kingdom, but most of its equipment is left. Um, that's why Church is so keen to get American military support. And by that, you know, we mean rifles, we, we mean vehicles, we mean the bullets to fire from the rifles. You know, it's the very basic stuff that Britain has had to abandon in France. So that was a pretty disastrous start to the to the land fighting then there's the heroic moment in which uh, a relatively small number of fighter pilots flying the spitfires and hurricanes in the battle of britain beat off uh, the, the the far greater numbers of the luftwaffe so i suppose that is a that is a, a success point certainly for the royal air force um, that that's a moment of, of triumph. And then the only real engagements with the enemy are in North Africa, this sort of rather strange war that when Mussolini brings Italy into the war in, in June 1940, basically he thinks Britain is defeated. France is defeated and he thinks Britain will be very soon defeated. So it's time for the Il Duce, um, as he called himself, the leader, to sort of ex exert his strength in the Mediterranean. He always saw the Mediterranean as legitimately an Italian lake, you know, as it as it sort of had been in classical times. And so he, he invades Egypt and um, the British army fights back and again is, is quite successful in fighting uh, the Italian army. Then 
then Hitler sends Rommel, his most daring general, to, to support Italy, and a sort of seesaw war breaks out, going backwards and forwards along the North African coast. And that's really that's really the only sort of military engagement there is um, uh, up until 1942. So I don't think you can say it's a very creditable record up until your date, the 1st of January, 1942. Certainly the RAF can be proud of their achievement, but the army hasn't done anything very grand, very successful. The Navy um, has lost a, a lot of ships. The Royal Navy was still the largest naval force in the world in 1939, 1940. Um, uh, so... I would say, you know, we couldn't look back with much, much pride. We could look at the pride of the British people. I think we can look with pride at the determination of the British people. You know, tens of thousands of civilians are killed in the bombing of the British cities. But, um, uh, you know, the spirit doesn't collapse. There, There is no widespread call for surrender or negotiated truce or, or anything like that, as so often happens. Um you know, we see we see it happening today in Ukraine that, that when you bomb people, you actually make the survivors more determined rather than want to want to give in. So that was certainly the case in Britain, and it became the case in Germany when when the Allies were bombing Germany later in the war. Has it ever been definitively proves not the word analyzed or or concluded among historians like yourself and others why Hitler? didn't affect Operation Sea Lion? Why did he not invade Britain when Britain was probably at its lowest point, just in terms of material and and all the other things you mentioned a few minutes ago before the United States could really get rocking? Yes, there is quite a debate about this. I mean, my, my view is that the invasion was never really practical. I mean, we know that when the invasion happened the other way around in 1944, you know, it, it took pretty well 18 months of planning. The organization of a huge naval force with thousands of landing craft being available, uh, a massive aerial operation that preceded the invasion. Uh, so we know the scale of what was needed in a cross-channel amphibious invasion. And Hitler just didn't have the resources to put that together. It had never really been envisaged in the 1930s that there would need to be an amphibious invasion of the United Kingdom. And so all that he really did was they brought up some barges from the Rhine, these sort of huge vessels you still see going up and down the Rhine today, up to the Channel ports, you know, potentially with the idea of carrying men across the English Channel. But the Navy was still very much in control. Hitler knew that he couldn't mount an invasion unless he had aerial supremacy. Goering, his the, the chief of the Luftwaffe, says, "Leave it to me, you know, leave it to me, <laughs> Führer. I'll sort that one out. You know, consider it done." But of course, he doesn't do it. He fails there. So Hitler didn't have command of the sea. He didn't have command of the air. Um, and I don't think, I don't. Well, I think a, an invasion would have failed, to be quite honest. Um, and I think Hitler probably feared that and he was all conquering all successful all triumphant at the time so he didn't didn't want to take that risk and in any way i think he still thought that probably at some point you know this crazy 
bulldog figure Churchill will come over and realize that there's only one sensible thing for Britain to do, and that is to sign a treaty with Germany, and then he can he Hitler can get on with his you know life's crusade, which is to to destroy um, Bolshevism, to destroy communism, and to exterminate the Jewish people. I mean, those are the two things that really obsessed Hitler in the war. Disgusting they, they were. And, um, you know, Britain was just a sort of irritant on the side, really. You know, they'll come to their senses before long, I think Hitler thought. So, so yes, you're absolutely right. In September, he does call off all the planning for an invasion. But, but my view is that... It, it never would have been successful, and Hitler's heart was never really in it. If 1942 is the is the nadir, perhaps, of Great Britain in World War II, is it conversely the zenith for Nazi Germany? Was 42 the year that Hitler and the Germans could have won the war in the European theater? Well, I think that the key question there, Robert, is 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 the Eastern Front, is what was happening on, on the Eastern Front. I mean, he, he'd succeeded everywhere in the West. And, and then, as we were saying just now, in June 41, he attacks Operation Barbarossa, who attacks the Soviet Union. He says he's going to kick the state down and it'll collapse in, in no time at all. And, and although hundreds of thousands i mean when you look at the numbers who surrender the numbers of russian soldiers who surrender to the germans um i mean the, the fighting in ukraine and the capture of kiev as it was then called was one of the biggest battles in in military history up to that point uh, you know hundreds of thousands of russian soldiers end up surrendering um, but the state is so vast and the territory of the Soviet Union today, Russia, you know, is so enormous that, that it's a bigger task. And throughout history, we've seen um, invaders fail to, 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 to um, defeat Russia. Napoleon failed in 1812 and all of that. And, and Hitler fails in 1941. I think, I think the only way he could have defeated Russia was quickly. And by the end of 1941, although the survival of the Soviet state is still lying in the balance, I think Hitler just about missed his opportunity. And as 1942 advances and the Soviets re-engage, um, whether it was ever possible for him to go on to defeat, I, sp I suppose, yes, I suppose it was possible. Uh, and certainly the the British feared this, were, were fearing it throughout 1942, that, that um, Rommel would defeat the Allies in North Africa and thrust across the Middle East through what was then Palestine, today's Israel, up into Syria, up into Iraq, that the, the German forces attacking the Soviet Union would then drive to the south, south they'd capture Stalingrad, they'd move into the Caucasus, and they'd sort of join up then with the Japanese coming from the east, you know. The fear was that the whole world would fall to um, fascism in Europe and militarism in the Far East. And so, so I think we should probably say, yes, there was a possibility that, that Hitler was all conquering in 1942. Although again, you know, he'd bitten off so much. And um, although the German army was very efficient and although it was supported by 
volunteers from from countries that that Hitler had uh, invaded. You know, they they weren't such good troops and um, weren't as determined as as the Germans were. So, I I think personally, he probably missed his moment by 1942. So I would say that uh, to answer your question, could Hitler have won the war in 1942? He could have done, yes. And the British and the American strategic planners feared that was a strong possibility. But I think looking back on it now, we can say it would have been very, very unlikely for him. And am I correct in recalling that, that Stalin would use a separate peace treaty with Germany as sort of a bargaining chip if I don't get the if I don't get the planes and the ammos and the trucks and the tanks and everything that I need, you know, I'll maybe I should just go have a conversation with. Yes, I, th- I think I think he did. He did sort of threaten that as a possibility. And he also threatened that if Stalin also said to, to Churchill initially uh, and then to the Americans, you know, if 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 I'm defeated, if we are defeated, if the Soviet Union is defeated, then they're going to come after you, you know, with even more troops. You've got to remember the scale of the fighting on the Eastern Front. You know, there were 180 German divisions that were tied up on the Eastern Front. In North Africa, where Britain was confronting Rommel, there was, I think, I think it was four German divisions. (laughs) So, you know, the scale of what was going on on the Eastern Front was really, in terms of land fighting, was determining the course of the Second World War. And I think you could go on to argue that despite the opening of the the Second Front in 1944 with D-Day and the invasion of Europe and so on, that still the really gargantuan, titanic battles, land battles, were taking place on on the Eastern Front. We had some battles where the Soviet Union, especially at the beginning of the war, 600,000 troops. The Germans were constantly taking hundreds of thousands of Russian troops prisoner, and it just didn't seem to matter. The Blitzkrieg exactly. tactics, the, the Blitzkrieg tactics that they were that were so brilliant in the West were somewhat defeated by the vastness of the space in the Soviet Union. They just didn't work the same way. And wherever, you know, one Soviet soldier went down, two popped up in its place. So is that part of what you're talking about in the sense that he bit off more than he could chew, that that all the advantages that the German army had in doctrine and tactics and equipment just couldn't swallow the Soviet Union? Yes, very much so. You, you you put that very succinctly. Yes, I mean, a lot of the German officers were sort of reporting back, you know, either in letters home or in or even in official reports, saying, you know, well, today we captured this city or we crossed this river. Um, what do we do tomorrow? Well, we just carry on to the <laughs> next river or the next city, and then when we cross that one, there's another river and another city. It's just so vast what we do here and of course armies you know this this the scale of the fighting in the west in, in terms of the distances covered you know we're, we're talking about 100 miles maybe here or there or you know a couple of hundred miles over a month or something like that and armies can just about keep themselves going um on those sorts of distances but in the eastern front the the, the distances were vast tanks broke down uh trucks ran out of fuel, um, men ran out of ammunition, out of food and rations, and everything had to be brought up and with things 
you know, with, with everybody running out of everything sort of thing. You know, the whole logistics is not a very dramatic part of military fighting, the logistics campaigns, but it's absolutely vital to get the logistics right. And it was so difficult to keep an army moving over the distances involved in in, in Russia. So, yes, uh, I think it is right that, 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 that Hitler just sort of gets lost in the in the in the prairies of of and the vastness of, of russia but what was happening in the west was both in the far east as far as, far as britain was concerned there's just one disaster after another soon after pearl harbor churchill sends two big battleships well a battle cruiser and a battleship um towards malaya they're both sunk by um Japanese dive bomb, uh, torpedo bombers, massive loss of life. Um, you combine those losses with the losses to the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a huge number of heavy battleships have gone down in absolutely no time at all. Then there's the, the land invasion of Malaya leading to Singapore. Singapore had been a base that Britain had built up for 20 years pretty well since the 1920s as the impregnable fortress and uh, a symbol of british power in the far east but all its guns are pointing out to sea imagining there'll be a naval attack the japanese come down the malayan peninsula with their own form of blitzkrieg incidentally mm. you know they're as fast moving in in the the jungles of malaya and southeast asia as the germans had been in the in the forests of France and Belgium and Holland. They come down with incredible speed. And on, in um, the middle of February, 1942, the British garrison there is a garrison still of about 100,000 men, 100,000 soldiers, surrenders to a Japanese force of about 23, 24,000. I mean, this is a defeat of shocking proportions. Churchill describes it later as as the biggest defeat of, of uh, biggest british military defeat in in our history you know it's absolutely catastrophic and the photographs that go out of a british general walking out with a white flag to parley with the japanese commander and eventually surrender you know a tremendous it's not just a military defeat it's uh, an imperial collapse an imperial humiliation and churchill feels this very very deeply in Britain. Uh, and that's followed by a collapse in Burma. If if the collapse in Singapore is the largest defeat in British history, the collapse in, in um, Burma, Myanmar as it is today, it brings about the longest retreat in British history, when the army retreats 900 miles to escape back into India. And it leaves the Japanese army literally at the gates of India. This is the great jewel in the crown of the British Empire, the vast, um, the vast continent of, of India. The, the Japanese sent a task force into the Bay of Bengal, a, a naval task force into the Bay of Bengal, and it looks as though maybe India even will be invaded at, at some point. They don't invade in the end, but, um, but it's certainly not for because the British military had turned them around. So there's one disaster after another. And you know, what happens in a democracy is military disasters or military failures lead to a political crisis. No democratic leader can really stand up to defeat on the battlefield on this sort of scale. 
uh, without there being some internal political crisis. Now, it's interesting comparing that to Russia today, where, as we're talking, Putin is suffering one military defeat after another. But because he's a totalitarian, autocratic leader, he sort of controls public opinion, doesn't let the information get out. And, and so he, he, at the moment, all things might change. But at the moment, you know, he is still politically relatively strong. In a democracy, you can't do that. Defeats on the battlefield produce a political crisis at home. And Churchill faces two votes against him in the House of Commons, a vote of no confidence at the end of January 1942, and then a vote of censure in June of 1942. And um, he survives both of them, of, of course. He, 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 those who are attacking him uh, are defeated in the House of Commons. But, you know, this is, gives an opportunity for a lot of people to air their criticisms in public. And people think he's taken on too much. He's too old. He's not got the strategic vision to win the war. And there's a hell of a lot of criticism in Britain. You know, he's held up today as the, as the great leader. And people forget that during 1942, one of the sources that I, I use in my book, you know, records what people were actually saying in cafes, in the street, in shops, to their friends. And the number of people are saying, oh, he's past it. Oh, Churchill, he's, he's finished. You know, he was okay a couple of years ago, the finest hour and the battle of the few and all of that. But no, he's past it. He, we need somebody new to win this war. Um, and so there's not only military defeat on the battlefield, but there's a real personal political crisis for Churchill and for his government. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Taylor Downing. He is a historian, an author, a television presenter. We are discussing his new book, 1942, Britain at the Brink. The reviews, of course, are absolutely wonderful. I could read a lot of them, but it would probably take up the most of the po podcast. I'll give you a few. Uh, military history calls Mr. Downing's book, Thoughtful, intelligent, thoroughly researched, highly readable, and highly recommended. The Times of London declares 1942 is impressive, balanced, and often deeply moving book. Anyone who wishes to understand war and its terrible consequences should buy it. We are recording this podcast. We usually don't date them because we don't always post them in order. But we are recording this podcast on St. Crispin's Day, October 25th. And if you spin the calendar back a few centuries, you will know that October 25th, 1415, is the date of the Battle of Agincourt, in which Henry V and his band of brothers almost completely annihilate an entire French army. Or I guess you say they kind of did. Only reason I know a little bit about it is because my graduate school thesis subject, Sir Thomas Erpingham, was the commander of the archers for Henry V at Agincourt. 
I bring up this battle, this famous battle during the Hundred Years' War, which has been celebrated in England slash Britain for centuries, uh, to ask, uh, Taylor, would you put the Battle of El Alamein on the list of the most important, impactful British battles of all time? El Alamein occurs in 1942. That's the reason I bring it up. Yes, I think I probably would. Um, I mean, that's a, a, a brilliant remember of, a reminder of Agincourt and the importance of, of those battles there. And of course, many people might have seen the great movie with Laurence Olivier, Henry V, the Shakespeare play, uh, in, in, in which you know, that great victory is celebrated. Churchill always, by the way, had a very good sense of history, and he would often remind people, oh, today is the day of Agincourt, or today is the day... <laughs> of Trafalgar or today is the day of the Battle of Waterloo or something. And, you know, most of his people around him were far too busy worrying about that day to, <laughs> but <laughs> Churchill would always remember, you know, these, these big dates in history. But coming back to your question about El Alamein, yeah. So I've described briefly some of the disasters that took place, military disasters that took place during the course of 1942. And uh, this war in North Africa was going backwards and forwards. But every time the Eighth Army, which was the British uh, unit in, in Africa fighting out of Egypt, uh, thought they had one up over Rommel and his Africa Corps, which was a combination of German and Italian troops, um, Rommel got, got the better of them and defeated them and finally rolled back the whole army to within 60 miles of Alexandria uh, and Cairo, the, the capital of Egypt. And it looked as though uh, uh, Egypt would, would fall to Rommel. And with that, the Middle East would probably collapse and go to the German side with all the consequences that we were talking about just now. The British sort of dig in at El Alamein, which is just a tiny little station um, on, on the railway that goes up the coast and uh, are determined that they'll fight it out there. And the first battle in, in July of 1942, they, they effectively stop the uh, Rommel's advance, um, but can't, don't, aren't strong enough to counterattack. Then a new general is appointed, uh, General uh, Bernard Montgomery, a controversial figure uh, as he later became, but, but at this point, not so. And uh, he reinvigorates the Eighth Army. It's re-equipped with a lot of uh, American technology, particularly Sherman A4 tanks, uh, are sent by the Americans in very large numbers, uh, and uh, some um, uh, some um, American artillery as well. And this sort of reinvigorated, reinforced army finally launches a counterattack in 1942. Now, at that point, Churchill's standing as prime minister, the great bulldog figure, is, a, is about as low as it ever got in the war. He is turning to his friends, his colleagues, his political aides, and he is saying, one more defeat and I'm out. This is it. I can't carry on. My, my premiership will, will have to come to an end. Uh, this run of military disasters, defeats, fiascos, you know, can't go on. So Churchill knows that for him personally, politically, this is the this is the, the turning point battle. And Montgomery engages with the, with the Germans. Rommel is actually back in Germany to begin with. 
Um, he doesn't think uh, an attack is coming. Um, he, so he's back in Germany and it takes a, a few days for him to return to the battlefield. And Montgomery's planned this quite clever tactic of pretending to attack in the south, whereas in fact the main thrust is going in the north and the, 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 the German general who's there, Rummel's deputy, sort of falls for the, uh, falls for the, um, the deceit. And uh, the battle goes, ebbs and flows for several days, but finally in early November, after about 10 days of fighting, it's not a, it's not a brief battle, um, the Germans are routed and are in full-scale retreat. And this coincides just a few days later with the American landings in what was called Operation Torch in North Africa, in the western part of North Africa, in Morocco and Algiers. And uh, although, again, that's, that's, that takes a long, way, a long while to work its way out, Churchill feels that with the Americans now committing land forces, with the real major victory at El Alamein, that he can order for the first time the church bells to be rung in England. <laughs> now, the church bells have been silenced in 1939 when war was declared, but it was going to be the code in 1940 that the Germans had invaded. If the church bells started ringing, this was a sign that the invasion had begun. Um, but all that's passed by now, of course. And in 1942, Churchill orders the church bells to be rung. And this time, it's not a sign of invasion. Uh, or imminent defeat, it's a sign of victory. And Churchill uh, you know, is, is so relieved that at last he's got a victory. And Churchill always has a phrase, you know, he always comes up with the right phrase. And the phrase he came up with later was that up to El Alamein, we never had a victory. After El Alamein, we never had a defeat. And this was... In certainly in terms of the British and the uh, British fighting the Second World War, it was a turning point battle. It was quite small in scale, certainly by comparison to the numbers we were talking about just now on the Eastern Front, where these right. huge Titanic battles are taking place. It's really quite a small conflict, but it's very symbolic, and it's uh, it, it begins a whole run of military victories for, for Britain and our armies, and as the Americans join in, as as your troops arrive on the scene, a whole string of victories for the Americans as well. So, yes, I think you can say it's a, it's a turning point battle. And does it, does it, does it matter to the, to the Brits at the time? In every book I've ever read about World War II or, or the leaders of World War II, a recurring theme is how the Americans are just chomping at the bit to invade France and people like general Marshall, especially who, who once cursed at Churchill after one of his ideas and said, I think uh, not one goddamn American is going to die on that beach. That's a direct quote or some Churchillian, you know, fantasy invasion, but the Americans wanted to get at Europe. The Brits were saying, look, let's do this. Americans thought we're not going to be used to, to preserve your empire. But hasn't history, the decades, proven that the Brits were right, that we, we, the United States and the Allies, were not ready to invade France in 42 or 43, and that the quote-unquote soft underbelly 
Mediterranean strategy was the best way for the Western allies to help the Soviet Union and and help defeat Germany? Well, I think you're right, Robert, absolutely. I mean, I've been running down the British war effort quite a lot. As, <laughs> as a Brit, I've been running down the British war effort. But at this point, I think I have to say the Brits were right, as you've just said. Yeah, we weren't. The, the Allies weren't ready yet to invade northern France. In order to mount a full amphibious invasion of France that eventually comes in June 1944 with D-Day, you need complete control over the seas. And in 1942 and early 1943, we hadn't won the Battle of the Atlantic. The U-boat menace was an absolutely um, catastrophic threat to the Allies, not just in terms of... Uh, sinking ships that were bringing supplies and men from the United States to, to Britain. But Britain needed, Britain was an island nation that, that needed food, it relied upon imports of food, of uh, medical supplies, of chemicals, of, of, of most things. Um, and so the Battle of the Atlantic was massive. That had, had not been won um, right up until really the late spring of 1943. And also we didn't have aerial supremacy over northern France. The Luftwaffe was still powerful enough to be very strong there. So an, an attempted invasion of northern France when we didn't have control of the Atlantic and we didn't have control of the skies over northern France would, I think, have been a disaster. And Churchill knew that and argued it very forcefully that we should continue with the land battles where we're winning them from North Africa. He wanted to invade Sicily. That did eventually happen. The Americans, you know, you guys went along with that, but then you didn't really want to get involved in Italy. Churchill said, yes, you know, we're right. Messina and Sicily is only two or three miles from the toe of Italy. We should get into Italy and start fighting there and continue the, 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 the campaign there. Uh, and more and more General Marshall and the, the chiefs of staff in the States were saying, this is just some sort of sideshow. You know, we've got to get the main assault in place in Northern Europe. And of course they were right. The only way to finally defeat Germany was to get an army on the ground, moving across Europe and ultimately into Germany itself. So they were right in the long run, but I think uh, Churchill and the British military chiefs, General Allenbrook, the chief of the general staff, felt very much the same as Churchill, that, um, that this, this was just too early, or 1942, 1943 as well, was just too early. And a defeat would, would not only be very difficult to come, come back from, uh, but it wouldn't help Stalin. Stalin's calling for the second front, you know, open the second front, come on, get on with it, open a second mm -hmm. front. But a second front that ends in disaster and another Dunkirk, another retreat from France would have set back the whole Allied campaign a lot. So it was, it was a near run thing to quote the Duke. <laughs> yes. Wellington, even of another, with of another, another turning point battle. <laughs> Waterloo. Well, I mean, it was a near run thing with, with 18 months of planning in the American economy, you know, for at least a couple, three years geared up in a war footing. So no, I agree. I think both sides were right. It was just a matter of the, how the temporal connection it is you want to make. I want to, before we, uh, we have a few more minutes here with Taylor Downing. I want to talk two battles as we end 1942, one which went past it, but one that was uh, wholly within it in a different part of the world. Any list 
of the most impactful naval battles in history always includes the Battle of Midway, June of 42, in which the United States sunk four Japanese character or carriers, excuse me, in any list of the most impactful or dispositive land battles of all time includes Stalingrad, where the Germans were eventually defeated in 43. And if you read about this battle, you read about the absolute limits of human endurance. When, when the oil is freezing in your tanks, it's cold. Taylor, talk to us, please, a little bit about those battles and why they were so important and led to, maybe as Churchill put it, the beginning of the end. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean both of them, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, remember that the Japanese had begun their assault upon the United States by attacking the fleet at Pearl Harbor. Luckily, the aircraft carriers were not in the harbor at Pearl Harbor when the Japanese raiders attacked. Uh, and so they sort of lived to fight another day. And the Japanese Navy were determined eventually to, you know, that they must track them down, entice them into a battle, and then overwhelm them with their own, as they thought, superior naval power. And so that's exactly what, what they were trying to do in Midway. Uh, America had cracked the radio signals, knew, knew what the Japanese plans were. There was then quite a lot of luck because, you know, there were nine crucial minutes, I think it was, in the, in the Battle of Midway when uh, the uh, um, uh, American aircraft identified, find a couple of the carriers. They're at the most vulnerable point where aircraft are refueling and there's lots of fuel tankers are around on deck and below decks and so on. And they hit the Japanese aircraft carriers at the perfect moment. I mean, it, it, I don't think it was <laughs> quite designed that way, but they certainly couldn't <laughs> have got luckier than that. So that was, uh, and the Japanese Navy never really recovers from that. His army is still very strong and very difficult to defeat, but that was an absolute turning point and a sort of revenge for Pearl Harbor. Um, but also a sign that, you know, the American Navy and by implication, the whole American military machine is able to fight back. The, the turning point on the land doesn't really come until much later in the year in Guadalcanal and, and, and all of that. But it's, but it's a very, very important turning point in the, in the naval engagements of the, and you, we've got to remember that the Pacific is such a huge area that, that, that supplying men ashore, getting Marines to places to land, you know, re relies upon the Navy. And so a naval battle is going to be a very significant part uh, of any war in the Pacific. And that, that victory midway is certainly an important one. Then about, let me ask a quick question. Since we're talking about the American Navy, I don't want to be too much of a, of a cheerleader because I was in the army, not the Navy. So, you know, I don't, I don't want to make the Navy look good. I had a Naval historian on about a year ago named Greg Simons. And he said, I asked him the question, is the United States Navy in World War II the great other than the strategic air command right so not pre-nuclear is the united states navy in world war ii the greatest fighting force in the history of the world and he said yes well that's uh feel free to disagree i that's just want to get your opinion <laughs> um i mean it was certainly supremely successful after the um the disaster at pearl harbor so uh 
I think I need a, I need a bit of time to think that one through, Robert. Actually, I'm um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not absolutely immediately persuaded, but but certainly it was it was an important part of bringing victory in the Pacific, as I said, where where you really are reliant upon the Navy to to, to keep things going. I mean, he didn't do so well in the Atlantic to begin with. Um, certainly in the early months of 1942, again, another part of the disaster that was ni- the year 1942 was um, the, 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 the U-boat captains called it the happy hour, you know, because they were just sinking the happy time. Yeah, that's right. You use that they're... phrase in your book. That's right. Go ahead. Yeah, because they were sinking ships, American ships, so easily up and down the uh, the, the East Coast. So that might be true in the Pacific, but I'd, I'd want to sort of challenge that a little bit in the in the. Um, in the Atlantic or in Europe. Please go ahead about Stalingrad. But yes, coming back to Stalingrad, I think there's absolutely no question there. That that really is a huge turning point battle. Um, the, the the German Sixth Army, this sort of hugely confident army that had been right at the centre of the victories in Europe two years before, um, advances this enormous distance, surrounds um, Stalingrad, is, is absolutely, is totally arrogant. About it, you know, these sort of Soviets don't know how to fight, and we'll show them. But actually, the German army wasn't really geared to fighting in a city or fighting in cities, and they were great at traveling across great big distances, even though the distances never seemed to come to an end. But it, they really met their match, and very, very determined resistance within. It wasn't street fighting. It wasn't even house fighting. It was almost room by room fighting in Stalingrad. It got so bitter, so, so vicious. And then the winter comes in. You look at photographs of Stalingrad. I once did a study of the aerial photographs taken over Stalingrad. And you look at a city that is just ice, really. It's just completely frozen. The Germans didn't have the right equipment. They didn't have the right clothing. uh, And they really had met their match. And then... Right at the end of January, again, again, the Luftwaffe comes in, Goering says, don't worry, I'll supply everybody by the air. You know, there'll be no problem here. Hitler says, we must not retreat. Goering says, I'll supply these guys, don't worry. And of course, they just can't. The, the, the hundreds of tons of equipment they need every week can't be sent in by air. Um, and then eventually at the end of January, the, the, um, the Germans are, 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 are just completely defeated. Hitler makes von Paulus into a field marshal, knowing that no field German field marshal in history has ever surrendered. But that isn't enough to prevent von Paulus from, um, from handing over his, the remnants of his force and surrendering. And that, I think particularly because it comes so close to, to El Alamein, and, and I've already said that El Alamein, by comparison, was a sort of very small-scale battle by comparison to this huge conflict. But... You know, I think those two those two actions are both symbolic, and I, people at the time realised this was very important as well. You know, it's easy for historians to look back years later and say, "Ah, well, this is the moment when all things happened and all <laughs> things change." You know, and so on. But even at the time, I think people thought, with the British Army advancing in North Africa, with the Americans coming in in Northwest Africa, and with the Soviets defeating uh, a major army and taking it captive. In Stalingrad, you know, the war really has turned and is going in the right direction. But again, you know, it doesn't, it's not easy. It's not over in a fortnight. You know, it still takes two and a half years of very dogged fighting um, to, 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 to get to that moment where uh, the, 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 the Germans finally sign the, the surrender agreement in uh, May 1945. 
Well, there's a lot of things that this podcast has has brought back to my attention. Reading your book was terrific. Really enjoyed it. Great storytelling. Some lots of facts I didn't know. A lot of behind the scenes bickering. But what you have brought back to my uh, consciousness during this podcast is just how, how absolutely a loathsome a person and leader and character that Herman Goring was. I mean, he's a morphine addict, so maybe he was hopped up most of the time. He didn't know what was doing, but I don't know that he kept a single promise that he made to Hitler throughout the whole war, whether it's Dunkirk or the Battle of Britain or Stalingrad or anything. Yeah, well, he certainly uh, <laughs> he was too big for his boots, almost literally. And uh, <laughs> um, yeah, he's he's. Uh, uh, I think his finest hour actually came after the defeat. I think he he, he sort of sobered up or came off the drugs and um, and put up a good defence in Nuremberg. Of course, a, hope, a hopeless defence. You know, how could you defend the the genocide uh, and the cruelty and the barbarism of the uh, of the Nazi war machine? But you know that, in a sense, that was his finest hour. After it was all over, he, he failed, as you said, on pretty well every promise he made to Hitler. And Hitler, in the end, you know, found him an irritant. He got very, very annoyed with him and. You know, you could always imagine him saying, oh, shut up, Herman. You know, we've heard enough from you sort of thing. And I doubt he said actually those words, but, you know. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. And, um, but it was a long, long struggle, as I've said. You know, it, it took a lot to defeat the German war machine. And even though, from Churchill's point of view, from December the 7th, 1941, victory was inevitable, uh uh you know it's a it was a long long hard fight and obviously as we know in 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 asia and the pacific as well another long battle that only ends with the use of atomic weapons so we have so. reached the we have reached the point in the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five benign questions to all of our guests taylor downing are you ready i'm standing by what was your first job Oh, my first job was at a place called the Imperial War Museum in London, yeah. where I had to study film and catalogue film for them. And uh, it's a great place to work, and it's still a fabulous place to visit. I encourage all your listeners who might be in London to go and visit the Imperial War Museum. And one of its outstations is the Churchill War Rooms, um, which are the actual rooms where Churchill led some of the war. If you can see them in the movie, they're portrayed in the movie Darkest Hours. That's it. Yep. Num number two, what was your first concert? The Beach Boys. <laughs> I saw the Beach Boys in London when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 or something. My parents let me go. I got a ticket and I went by myself to the, to the concert. Still remember, I love the Beach Boys. That's awesome. Good for you. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Oof. Any book on, on any subject? Yes, sir. Well, I reread just recently George Orwell's book, 1984, which I read a long time ago as a, as a student and I hadn't read for a long time. And that, uh, has some very spooky, very spooky predictions in it uh, about the sort of world that, that we're almost living in today, where there is so much control 
uh, over people's lives. So I would say to any of your listeners who haven't uh, read 1984 by George Orwell, give it a go. It's not a happy read. It's not a cheerful book at all. It's it's in many ways a very bleak uh, account of Orwell's prediction of the future. But it's I think it's probably even closer. The world that he depicts in that book is probably even closer to us today than it was when he wrote it in the late 1940s. If you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Hmm. Well, that's very interesting. Um, as a Londoner, I grew up in London and uh, I've lived in London most of my life with a few excursions elsewhere, but uh, mostly in London. Uh, I suppose seeing the survival of the city through the Blitz would, would, would be quite a remarkable experience. You know, Londoners went down into the underground, into the tube, into the metro system to shelter. The area that I live in today was very heavily bombed in South London. And um, getting a sense of how people felt and that sort of sense of defiance and determination, I think to, to witness that firsthand would be, would have been quite remarkable. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record just to chat, whom would you choose? Someone who's got to be living today. Yes, sir. Well, I would love to know President Obama. I would really love to spend time with him. I'm a great admirer of his leadership and his presidency. He is the most frequently cited. Is he really? Oh my God! So I, you know, I need to get him. I need to figure out a way to get him on the podcast so I can tell him that hey, you know, everyone wants to have dinner with you. Yeah, yeah. Well, well I'd, I'd certainly put him up. Put him up there. I, what I would have to say is uh, certainly no recent British leader would I want to have uh, dinner with. We're going through a torrid time in Britain. That's true. Um, with very, very poor. Uh, political leadership. So I certainly wouldn't want to sit and waste two hours of my time talking to any British political leader. But I think there are still great leaders in the United States that, that we've seen over recent times. And um, Obama would be would be one of those at the top of the list for me. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Taylor Downing. He is the author of 1942, Britain at the Brink, among many other works. They're all incredibly well-reviewed. Mr. Downing, you are a wonderful podcast guest. Thank you for letting me ask you these questions. I thoroughly enjoyed your book. We'll put a link on social media where we can get it. And uh, once I read your book on 1983, I'd love to have you back on the podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, 
please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.